This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Hey y'all, how are we? Arnaldo here, lead pastor at Anchor Southwest and it is such an honor and a pleasure to be here, albeit digitally. So big shout out to our Anchor City family and our Anchor Southwest family. We are so excited. I am so excited that soon we will meet right here back in this room, Southwest. I have missed you so much, um, and I'm just excited and glad uh, that we will be together again soon. Now, we're almost there. We are almost there at the end of the book of Exodus, and we have two weeks left here in the book of Exodus, and I want to take a quick glance back before we continue to move forward. If you remember uh, way back, a couple months ago now, um, I took you through this um, sort of chart of the book of Exodus. And the question in the first 15 chapters of Exodus was how was God going to rescue Israel from the grip of slavery in Egypt? That's what the first 15 chapters really focused on. And through judgment on the gods of Egypt and on Pharaoh, through a mighty hand, Yahweh, Israel's God, was res- uh, rescued his people, Israel. And then the next question in chapter 16 to 24 uh, was this. How was God going to shape this newly emancipated people? How would he establish his covenant with them. And through the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the marriage ceremony of Exodus 24, the stage has been set for God's renewal project to launch through this new people, a new humanity. And the question in Exodus 25 to 40 uh, will be this, that in light of the golden bull, In light of the idolatry, in light of the intractable waywardness of his people, in light of Yahweh's own holiness, how will God, what, be present with his people? How will he dwell with his people? That's the great question that the rest of the book is trying to answer. And remember, the answer last week was quite bleak. Let me remind you what happened Exodus 33.3 33, said, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. But what we're going to find out today is that there is a way. Yahweh will make a way. This is what we're going to find out today. That the only thing more intractable, more stubborn, more tenacious than the power of sin is the goodness, the mercy, the grace of Yahweh. Yahweh desires to dwell with his people, albeit sinful, broken, dysfunctional, wayward, stiff-necked, people. And Yahweh will make a way. God will make a way for himself to do this. And so this is what we're going to do today. We're going to fly over Exodus 33 and 34 at about 30,000 
feet. And we're going to focus on just two verses. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Before we do that, help me to pray. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that, in fact, you are good. We thank you that we can say that despite our circumstances, knowing that one day, Lord, you have done everything. You have gone to the cross, Jesus, to change our circumstances so that one day we could be with you unmediated in the presence and the glory of Jesus. And so, Jesus, I pray now that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people today. Help me to remember the things that will be. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw people near, that there are people I know listening in today who may be far from you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would woo them, that you would draw them into your grace. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So remember, the people head out mourning. Because of the devastating words, this is last week, the devastating words that Yahweh will send a messenger in front of the people, but will not be in the midst of the people. And Moses launches into some of the boldest acts of challenge and mediation on behalf of the people. And over the four, next four interaction, uh, interactions, Moses pleads with God, pleads with Yahweh to go with his people, to relent again, and to move and to dwell with Israel. And the first of the four interactions, Yahweh assures Moses that, in fact, he will be with his people. Read with me here, Exodus 33:14, And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, strangely, Moses asks Yahweh to dwell with his people again in the second interaction and again in the fourth interaction. Because Moses goes from, remember Moses, Moses goes uh, from Exodus chapter 3, he goes from a reluctant liberator. Remember the, the five reasons why Moses said, I'm not going to go? He goes from a reluctant liberator to now to a selfless mediator where he's not even willing to go with Yahweh unless the people come to. He tells Yahweh, I'm going to be with my people, your people, but I'm, I, I got to be with you too. But it's this third interaction that stands outside of the norm of the four where we're going to spend most of our time today because Moses deviates from his normal line of questioning. He doesn't ask God to be amongst his people. He asks Yahweh, he asks the Lord to show him his glory. Follow with me here from Exodus 33:18, which says this, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses wants to see God's glory. And what does that actually mean? In this word glory, someone's kavod is their, their heaviness, the, the quality of their honor. Moses wants to see. He wants to understand not only Yahweh's presence, but what that presence represents, Yahweh's being. Who are you? I want, I want to see your essence. He wants an unfiltered experience of the person of Yahweh. Not, not through a fire, not through a messenger, not through a cloud, not through a voice only. Even I want to see your glory. But notice, notice what Yahweh's response is to Moses' request. What is the heaviest thing about God? What is... The heaviest thing about God. When, when asked to disclose what the glory of God is, what is Yahweh's response? Now, Yahweh gets Moses to recut the stones, the ones that he smashed last week, to replace the ones that, that he, he, he destroyed. And God rewrites the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words on them. And then... This is God's response. My goodness will pass by you. So, so in, in, in the middle of, of Yahweh telling Moses, hey, you're going to cut some stones because you broke the last ones. I'll rewrite the covenant on there. But, but he says, you want to know my goodness? You, you want to know what the heaviest thing about me is? He says, my goodness will pass by you. And it's this goodness that is the hope of the world. It's Yahweh's own goodness, not yours, not mine, not Moses's, not whoever politician is in power at the moment. None of that will sustain the covenant with the people of Israel, our covenant with God. Only God's goodness can sustain it. Follow me here. In verse 6, chapter 34, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth. These verses are the climax of God's self-revelation in the book of Exodus. And they are the most well-known and oft-quoted verses in the Old Testament. And if you want to learn more, over into the chat room or I think on the notes to my right, uh, you, you'll see uh, somewhere, there's going to be a box that says notes. If you click on that, I have posted all of the references that Exodus 34, 
6 to 7 uh, find themselves in in the Old Testament. Have fun. You have these verses either quoted or alluded to about 27 times in the Old Testament itself, and and probably also the background uh, to John chapter 1, when Jesus is spoken of, John chapter 1, verse 14, as Jesus being full of grace and truth. And we're going to explore these five words, these five words or phrases that God chooses to reveal to Moses. That when Moses asks, God, show me your glory, how does Yahweh respond? Now, the first word Yahweh uses of himself here in our translation is the word merciful. Now, words are elastic. We know that. Uh, And our translation here is a good one. Uh, uh, But the NIV has it or the NLT has it as compassionate. God is compassionate which I like a little bit better than merciful in this text. Now, the Hebrew word here is rahum, rahum, which carries the meaning of sympathy or compassion rather than simply mercy. In fact, the word, I love this, the word is connected to uh, the Hebrew word for womb, the womb of a woman. God is womb like. God is calling himself something like womish or womb-like. The picture is of a mother who tenderly cares for her babies. In 1 Kings 3, there's a story about a wise king, Solomon. You you may remember the story, uh, who has two women brought into the court. Now, the two women Uh, Both had babies at about the same time. And while they were sleeping with their babies, tragically, one woman uh, slept on top of her baby and one of them passed away. And in the middle of the night, what this woman does with with a child that has passed away, she actually switches the babies. And so they wake up in the morning and, and the woman who is now lying with, 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 with a dead child in, in her bed is like, this is, this is not my kid. And so they go to Solomon and they say, listen, we, we got to figure this thing out. We're, we're both claiming that this child is ours. We got to figure this thing out. So Solomon says, bring me a sword. And we're going to cut this baby in half, the the baby that's alive. We're going to cut this baby in half, and half will go to one uh, mother, half will go to the other. And the real mother screams out, and she says this. The woman, then the woman whose son was alive, said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. The NIV says that uh, she was deeply moved out of love. Those words, yearned for my son, deeply moved. That's the word womb-like, womish, rahum. You see, somehow we've been sold a bill of goods that tells us that God's primary attribute in the Old Testament is anger or wrath, but this couldn't be farther from the truth because when God has a chance to reveal himself and his attributes, he uses the maternal language of being compassionate, of being womish, of being full of rahum. Our God is a womb-like being, compassionate, 
And the second word he uses of himself is the word gracious. Now, this word is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament and is a way of describing a gift. Now, we often think about grace in a kind of flat, uniform way where we think grace means giving a bad person the opposite of what they deserve. And while that is absolutely true, that is radical grace, this word carries more dimensions than that. The word here is hanun. And hanun is translated as gracious or favor, being charming or, or gift. And it's, it's meant to be this multifaceted picture of beauty. Beautiful. It can also mean beautiful. Yahweh is full of hanun. He's full of beauty. Isaiah says, your eyes will see the king in his what? In his hanun, in his beauty. And of course, we uh, know this psalm, Psalm 24, 7, which says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh the Lord all the days of my life. To what? To gaze upon the what? The hanun of Yahweh. The beauty of Yahweh. And to inquire in his temple. Beauty. God is beautiful. Brian Sands says this, to a skeptical world, we are generally uh, more accustomed to defend Christianity in terms of its truth and its goodness. But beauty also belongs to the Christian faith. And beauty has a way of sneaking past defenses, and speaking in unique ways. To a generation suspicious of truth claims and unconvinced by moral assertions, beauty has a surprising allure. And everything, everything about Jesus Christ is beautiful. Yahweh's whole person is Hanun. And so it's fitting that he traffics in graciousness, in grace, he does all things beautifully and gives gifts. Yes, even when the recipients don't deserve it. And that's what makes Yahweh's graciousness exceedingly gracious. It's that very fact that he is being kind. He is acting beautifully towards those who may not deserve it. Those who broke his heart at the foot of the mountain. Now, the next thing that Yahweh reveals about himself is that he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Literally, arech af. Arech af. And this literally means long of nose. To have long nostrils, right? To be patient, slow to anger. Remember last week, I think it was last week, where we talked about uh, uh, a way, an idiom, a Hebrew turn of phrase uh, for talking about being angry is to say that your nose burns hot, right? Your nostrils got hot. Well, to be long of nose is for that to take uh, time, a long time to happen. He is slow to get angry. Here, Yahweh says that he is long of nose, patient, long-suffering, and notice, it doesn't say that he does not get angry. 
That's a modern notion that has no biblical warrant. A God who is not angry about the injustice of the world is no God at all. The fact is that God is indulgently patient, not wishing that any perish, as Peter reminds us in the New Testament. And it's interesting. It's interesting that out of the five words or phrases that Yahweh uses to describe himself, this is the only one about anger or wrath. And the only reason why it's mentioned is for you to notice, for me to notice, for Israel to notice, is that it takes him a very long time to get angry. God is slow to anger. But then, and, and for me, oh, this is, this is the one. Keeping steadfast love or abounding in love, abundant in goodness. In fact, of all the phrases, this one is the richest. Michael Card, in his book Inexpressible, explains that this word is untranslatable with just a single word. He notes this, that we can theorize about words and how they work. We can task the greatest minds with listing and outlining and defining them. We can analyze the structures we use to put them into language. But in the end, the way words work is an inexpressible mystery. But it doesn't stop them from trying to sort of collate the ways that we have translated this word. Love. Loving kindness, merciful love, sure love, relentless love, enduring love, extravagant love, affectionate satisfaction, love in action, dependable love, steady love, true love, fundamental love, miracle love, generous love, deep love, wonderful love, great love, incredible love, marvelous love, gracious love, Steadfast love, expression of love, faithful love, unfailing love, covenant love, faithful deeds, covenant, commitment, loyalty, great kindness. On and on he goes for a whole page and a half trying to express this inexpressible word. And the word, of course, is chesed. Chesed. Loyal love. I love the way that the folks over at the Bible Project translate it as loyal love. Sally Lloyd-Jones, in my favorite children's book, she defines it this way. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, forever love. God's love is unmatched and unmatchable. God's love is magnificent and altogether lovely. God's love is the most powerful force in the universe. To talk about God's love is to speak of an unspeakable mystery. Unspeakable because no words can capture just the intensity of it. So much so, so much so that when Paul 
prays for power in the book of Ephesians. We just did Ephesians. When Paul prays for power in the book of Ephesians, he prays that we would have power to what? I always expect him to say power so that we can love others, power so that we can serve others, power so that we can love God better, power so that we can stop sinning, power so that we can do acts of justice, which is all true. But when Paul prays for power, it's simply we need power to comprehend God's love for us. Like we need some kind of special equipment just to receive the reality of God's love for us, to even comprehend it. Loyal love, a never-quitting, faithful, strong, never-ending, sustaining, enriching, empowering, always present, always working kind of love. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. Never going to make you cry. Never going to say goodbye. And I will never tell a lie and hurt you. Man, Rick Astley's love for his girl is like a candle on the sun compared to the chesed of Yahweh. Amen. I should have saved this sermon for in person, I'll tell you that. And finally, abounding in faithfulness. In a culture where one couldn't guess which side of the bed your God would wake up on that day, faithfulness, truth, was something that Yahweh wanted to ensure his people knew about him, that he is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And the word here is emet. And emet, what, what the divine name Yahweh is, it's a name of stability, of faithfulness, of constancy. So, God, when he's asked to show Moses his glory, he responds by showing him his goodness. So, when he's asked to show Moses, when Moses asks him, show me your glory, and his goodness passes by, God says, I have rachum. I am womb-like. I am compassionate. The way that a, a mother loves her child that's how I feel about you. I have Hanun. I'm, I'm kind. I'm, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm, I'm beautiful. I am Arech Af. I'm patient. I'm long-suffering. I've got a long nose. I abound in Chesed. My love doesn't give up. Even in the face of your obstinance, I continue to pursue. I continue to love. I continue my commitment to you. I am full of emet. I am constant. I am trustworthy. I am not capricious. This, this is the God of the Old Testament that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And Yahweh continues in verse 7 when he says this, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, 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 who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, this takes a bit of a bit of a nasty, bit of a nasty turn, doesn't it? You know, like we were good, Yahweh. Love 
forgiveness, some new Hebrew words, and compassion, faithfulness, patience. We're good with that. But now you're saying you're going to make my kids and my grandkids pay for my sin? Like I'm paying for my grandfather's sin? Is that what is going on here? Now, in, in two words, absolutely not. We need to understand what Yahweh is saying as we pay attention to the Hebrew context here. Let me tell you clearly what he is not saying. He is not saying that if I sin, my kids and my grandkids will be responsible personally and to be accountable for God for that sin, even though they may bear the natural consequences of my sin. What he is saying is that he will deal with every generation in the same way. There won't be rules for one generation and different ones for the next. If the children and the children's children commit the same iniquity, the same transgression, the same sin, then Yahweh will visit them in the same way that he did their parents. This is an expression of Yahweh's constancy as it pertains to his justice. And this to the third and the fourth generation. And this phrase, to the third and the fourth, is a, another Hebrew idiom, another turn of phrase. You'll find that throughout Scripture, particularly in the, Pro, in the book of Proverbs as well, which simply means however many generations. However many generations sin, I will visit them in their iniquity. However many generations go astray, those are the ones that I will visit in judgment. But when it comes to speaking of his own forgiveness, he doesn't speak about three or four generations, or however many, he speaks about a thousand generations. Now, I did a bit of math. And per hundred years, there are about three to four generations. And if we do the math and we go from Moses to us, it's been about 4,500 years, give or take a century or two. And so when you add that up and multiply it and then divide it, this is what you get. So far, from the time of Moses to our day today, there have been about 135 to about 180 generations. And so we haven't even gotten close. We're not even a fifth of the way to what God is saying he will extend his grace to. Notice the disparity between the justice of God and the forgiving love of God. Chris Wright, biblical author and theologian and commentator, he says this, so Yahweh is the God who punishes and the God who forgives. Yahweh is the God of wrath and the God of grace and compassion. We cannot allow the second part of each sentence to eliminate the first. But our text will also not allow us to set these things in simple equation, as if love and wrath are equivalent and opposite motions or emotions within God. Listen to this. Rather, we have five declarations of grace in one form or another and one of judgment. And we have the explicit contrast of love to thousands with punishment to the third and the fourth. You see, Jesus' half-brother James was correct when he said that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we have a God that is constant. 
that is loving, that is full of grace and truth, full of loyal love. And this is the only, we got to get this. We got to get this. This is the only reason why you believe, the only reason why you still believe, the only reason why you sin so much but still remain in him is because this is who God is. This is who God has always been. Verse 10, then Yahweh said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders, never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord Yahweh, will do for you. And Moses speaks to this God of Hesed, the God of loyal love, to, to, to the point where his face begins to visibly shine. Our story later goes on to say a theme that Paul picks up later in the New Testament. And so this is the question. The question is that I posed in the beginning was in light of the golden calf, the golden bull that we looked at last week, in light of idolatry, in light of the intractable waywardness of his people, in light of Yahweh's own holiness, how will God dwell with his people? And God will continue to dwell in the midst of his people because of the stubbornness of God's goodness. The only thing more intractable more stubborn, more tenacious than the power of sin is the goodness, the mercy, the grace of Yahweh. His chesed. And how do we respond to this reality? How do we respond to such a great revelation about the heart of God. Moses, in 34.8, says, uh, it says that he bowed down at once and worshipped. He worshipped. And I just want you to get this, that God is full of compassion. God feels for you. Listen. God feels for you what a mother feels for her tender little child. Pre-toddler phase, of course. No, no, but really, I mean, that, that's, but that, that's the point, right? That, that's the point, that it's not just, you know, the, the, the sweet newborn phase. It's, it's the toddler phase. It's the, it's the tantruming phase that God so tenderly loves us in and through. God is full of grace. God is beautiful. And he wants to share that beauty with you even, and, and especially to those who are undeserving. That's you, by the way, and me. God is slow to anger. He is patient. You don't need to hide from him when you stuff up or go your own way. He wants, listen, he wants to forgive you and he wants to restore you far more than you want to be forgiven or restored. We can't hide our emotion. We can't feel like we need to sort ourselves out before we get into the presence of God. 
The presence of God is the safest place to sort out our junk. Yeah, you may get rebuked by God like Job did, absolutely. But that is the safest place to argue and question and wrestle and repent. God is full of chesed, full of loyal love. He is sticking by your side. He is holding your hand even when you let go. Psalm 73, my favorite psalm of all the psalms. It's a story of this guy called Asaph. And in the beginning, he, he says, uh, you know, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. And then he goes on about how he's jealous of those who are healthy and jealous of those who are rich. And he says, what's the whole damn point of following God if this is going to be my lot in life? He's angry. In fact, uh, the text says that it, he was like a brute beast before him. And yet, and yet, Yahweh held me by my right hand. He is holding on to you. I know, I know this year has been tough. It's been tough for me. It's been tough for all of us. I know. And he is holding on. Even when we're trying to get away. He's full of loyal love. God is constant. He is, he is faithful even when we aren't, especially when we aren't. Now, you can take this as an excuse to go off and, and sin, do your thing, thinking it's God's job to forgive, quote-unquote, but don't take God's kindness as a perverse kind of weakness. If you feel this is the kind of love that you can take advantage of, then you haven't even begun to understand yourself or God. My good friend, Rich Velotis, my brother from another mother, we grew up in the same neighborhood East New York represent. He says this, there are some who think that to always preach on the love of God is weak. I, I used to think this. Boy, the people, that, that people will take advantage of that love, that a flimsy, uh, that's a flimsy understanding of God's love. For God's love is the most powerful force in the universe to bring about change. Let me do this some justice. There are some who think that to always preach on the love of God is weak, that people will take advantage of that love. That is a flimsy understanding of God's love, for God's love is the most powerful force in the universe to bring about change. Now, my prayer is that if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the love of God that can be poured into your hearts, that you would turn to him now in repentance and faith. Click the pray with us button or the I give my life to Jesus or, or whatever button is there. Just connect with us. We would love to walk you through moving from death to life, from being transferred from the domain of darkness into glorious light, that you may celebrate with your Savior, with the lover of your soul, and that we would celebrate with you. It means that you would begin a journey of replacing the narratives and the lies about who you are, about who God is, about what the world is all about. 
that you drop your pretense and pick up your cross and follow Jesus, that you become part of God's renewal project, that you begin to turn from the destructive ways and patterns that led you to the place of emptiness that you're experiencing even now. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want the same thing for you, that you would wake up, oh Lord, do a work, that you would wake up to the love of God in Christ. Let me pray this over you. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the chesed of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. May it be so. We love you.